Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're dipping into the freshly published thematic guide from the Chief Investment Office of UBS Global Wealth Management. The publication presents the bank's longer-term investment themes for a multi-year investment horizon. It also outlines the underlying frameworks that support it, how UBS approaches sustainable investing for LTIs, and offers some compelling profiles of individual investment topics that are driven by some of the big secular themes we often discuss on this show, as well as by some more disruptive forces. We start with a bit of a scene-setter on the broad macroeconomic picture here from our friend and regular contributor to this programme, Paul Donovan. Paul is the Chief Economist in UBS Global Wealth Management. Paul, always great to speak to you on the show. Give us a little bit of background, Paul, first of all, on the importance of developing and presenting this sort of thematic guide to longer-term investing. Well, the first point, of course, is that a lot of our clients, a lot of investors generally, are interested in investing for the long term. You know, these aren't day traders punting the market. These are serious investors looking to you know, have legacy with their money. We may have charitable endeavors where you, you want to consider investing for a very, very long term. And so what we need to do is to say, okay, well, we can't obviously perfectly predict the future, but there are some long-term themes that we can identify. And if you're investing with the long-term in mind, you need to think about whether the investment decisions that you are taking are consistent with these long-term themes. And so that's what we're really looking for here, a way of benchmarking the key issues over the long term so that investors can make informed decisions when they're investing on a multi-year horizon. And Paul, at the risk of retreading some ground that you and I have covered on this programme before, I think it's still instructive to think about some of these big kind of long-term secular kind of drivers in this space. And some of them are perennials, which we've discussed, which nevertheless always remain interesting to, to remind our listeners of. Things like a rapidly growing population, one that is ageing, increasing urbanisation, certainly in emerging markets. These are things which have sort of perennial appeal in terms of being areas that investors can profitably focus upon. Yes, I mean, the way that we approach it is to say, well, we've probably got a number of themes which are enduring. These are long lasting, the effects of them are, are relatively easy to identify. And that is something like demographics of an aging population, for example, it's issues around healthcare, it's issues around urbanization in emerging markets. But then alongside that, we also have disruptive themes. Now, this is sort of the known unknowns of the long term. We know that these are going to be very important themes. The precise way in which they disrupt is very difficult to understand necessarily, but we know broadly that these are going to be disruptive influences. So that may be something like, for example, uh, technology. Now, we know technology is a disruptive force. It changes everything in society, and that's something to look at. Social issues are another disruptive theme. We know that social tensions are likely to increase, and that too is something that we have to factor in as to how it's all going to fit together. So we look at these enduring themes, we look at these disruptive themes, how they interact, and then what 
investment opportunities and, of course, what investment risks these all throw up. Uh, yeah, Paul, I find a kind of attitude thing here quite interesting because I guess there's a, a in, in some respects, investors can find it cheaper at this stage compared to say this time last year to enter some of these some of these areas you know we saw a sell off didn't we in growth oriented stocks earlier in the year which kind of presents an opportunity and likewise even those disruptive forces you talk about depending on how you look at it you could say sure look that exposes pain points and areas where industries need to move and develop but that itself drives innovation. It provides opportunities. Is part of it almost an attitudinal shift to see opportunities in the volatile times in which we find ourselves? It is. And of course, it's, it's very difficult to engage in the longer term when you've got a lot of short-term noise. One of the problems we repeatedly come across as human beings is that with the benefit of hindsight, we can say, oh, that was an ideal time to buy because it was cheap. But in the midst of, of a market correction, for example, the instinct is to become ever more conservative and to, to, to sort of pull back. So if you set yourself up with a long-term investment framework and you sort of accept that in the near term, markets will go down, markets will go up, and there will be volatility, you can sort of try and train yourself to have this longer term vision, this longer term idea of where you are going. And that means that you probably make, financially speaking, healthier investment decisions, because you're not being distracted by the noise. You're saying, look, no, we're investing for a, a philanthropic endowment, which you know is supposed to be supporting our aims over the next 40 or 50 years. Or frankly, the fact that you know, equity traders press the wrong button on their computer and the market's gone down, that shouldn't distract you from these long-term themes. But it does take discipline to get that. It does take uh, a mindset change because otherwise you can be sort of hunched over you know, your computer screen watching every little fluctuation in the market. And that's not really helpful if you're trying to invest with a, a long-term objective in mind. Well, Paul, we're going to talk a little bit to Stephanie Choi in particular about sustainable investing. But just on sustainability, again, it's another perennial that that we come back to. It does seem many of these longer term investment themes do have a, a sustainable investing focus, and that's completely understandable. Is it important, though, even when we look through that SI prism to remind investors, you know, not only to look from a sort of top-down perspective when it comes to thematic alignments, but also to think about other considerations, corporate sustainability considerations as well. It's important to be, what's the buzzword, sort of holistic in how, how investors look at these themes. I think it is. I mean, sustainability is a, is a good instance. I think sustainability, diversity, equity, inclusion, governance, the, the, the whole ESG spectrum, because our view is that as, as we you know, progress over the medium term, sustainable investment ceases to exist because it just becomes investment. And if it's not sustainable investment, then it just won't receive any money and it will be a, you know, a dying industry or a dying sector of the economy or, or what have you. So I think that what the long-term teams are, are doing is sort of underscoring what a lot of people instinctively know in terms of some of this bottom-up approach that you know, if you are looking at a company which doesn't marry up to these long-term themes, then really what is the long-term future of that company? You know, is, it, is it just sort of burning through its resources over the course of the next few years and then going to crash spectacularly? Or is it actually adapting to the longer-term environment? And if it's not, if it's not 
you know, a, a company that is pursuing a sustainable strategy over the medium term. Well, if you're not sustainable, you don't last. And, and that's, I think, an important consideration. Paul Donovan. Next, let's turn to Stephanie Choi, Sustainable Investing Strategist in the UBS Global Wealth Management CIO. Stephanie, great to chat with you again. And Paul Donovan has kind of set the the scene for us and reminded us about, you know, the role of these longer term investment uh, themes, you know, for investors who are taking that that multi year approach to their to their investments. Let's look a little bit at sustainability specifically. It's something that you and I have spoken about on this program before. Remind us how you and your colleagues think about sustainability and its and its relevance when it comes to to these kinds of, of thematics. Give us a bit of that context. Yeah, and this is really timely to be discussing this because I think since we last spoke, sustainable investing have also come under a lot of uh, media scrutiny um, around the confusion of what it really is. So this is just as a quick recap, right? Under the sustainable investing umbrella, there are really kind of three different ambitions. There is one where the goal is just for investing for a thematic exposure, right? So if you believe that the world is decarbonizing and going for you know, an energy transition, this itself is an ESG theme. The second area is for sustainability alignment. So what you're saying is that I don't just care about investing in some sort of societal shift. I actually believe that companies should be held responsible to the environmental and social impact that they yield on on the rest of the world. And as such, I want to invest in companies whose operations or strategy align with this worldview or values to some extent. And finally, you know, it, it is impact. So on top of investing for some sort of exposure alignment or, you know, implementation alignment, I actually want my money to make a positive change, net positive change for the world. Now, when we talk about thematic investing and then overlay that with these three different sustainability like sustainability ambitions, you can see that there are relevance across all three. So the way we look at it really gels with this as well. From the top down, we're looking at, you know, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So 17 goals with 169 targets underneath. These 169 targets are really the KPIs for countries to hit. So for example, if under the no poverty goal, there is actual KPI saying that the the metric that they want to track is the number of people, percentage population within a country that lives under the poverty line. So these are actually very transparent. And when we talk about a top-down alignment of a theme to a particular goal, we're really looking at that level of commitment. So would investments under this theme directly contribute to the world hitting the KPIs under the SDGs? So that's kind of like the top-down alignment. And sometimes um, this might not be as straightforward as you think. So for example, security and safety is a theme that we have on our shelf. When you think of it, you know, like cybersecurity, surveillance technology, but also very importantly, testing, inspection, and certification technology, right? So these are actually making diagnostics easier 
for medical and life sciences sectors. So we actually see security and safety as an example of a preventative technology that can cut across multiple sustainable development goals. And as such, we would tag it to something even like good health and well-being because better diagnostics actually prevent diseases instead of, you know, trying to cure uh, people who are already sick. So that's the top down. And then the second area is kind of alignment, right? I mentioned. And this is where we look at companies from the bottom up. So we say that, okay, if we want to make sure that our investors select companies that are genuinely delivering on that thematic alignment and sustainability alignment, then what are the potential uh, fallbacks or potential opportunities that they can capture? And here... Uh, we actually apply this sustainability consideration to all LTIs. And if you think of something like uh, smart mobility, which is like our electric vehicle and the future of transportation related theme, you can see that. So we're highlighting the need for life cycle analysis. So like current battery technology generates a lot of waste and also understanding the differentiation between kind of emissions and waste at the production level of the car versus like the use case once it's out the door, out the factory door. And we also have a looming electric vehicle waste issue because we're coming up to kind of around 10 years since, you know, the first uh, EVs really hit scale in a big way. And currently we don't have the technology to digest all of that battery waste um, of that size. So we're trying to give a balanced view, right? Saying that top-down alignment alone is not enough. A bottom-up analysis is required to ensure that what you invest in is actually what you expect. Right now, we see four different secular drivers that are really placing the emphasis, but also creating incentives for companies to take on this burden. So firstly, you know, regulators are getting more and more specific, right? So most notably in the EU, but, you know, also in China, Japan, US. But it's things like EU's um, right to repair, for example. So they have this law now where they require all electronics products to be able to be repaired, like, you know, so you can actually open it up and repair it instead of forcing you to buy yet another product um, within two years. So these are getting very, very specific and, you know, the, it's acting as a stick for companies to deal with this problem and embed better design. The other kind of top-down uh, force, external force is coming from consumers and we have extensive consumer surveys all around the world that are indicating that consumers are expecting more from, from the companies that they buy from, and they're also willing to pay a premium. So according to the IBM survey, they're willing to pay up to 35% premium. That's a pretty big incentive for companies to actually react and design more sustainable products in order to cater for these consumers. The final two are more to do with, you know, the practicalities of implementing circular economy within, you know, in a company's operations. The first is that with commodity prices where they are and the expectation that ongoing resource scarcity and supply obstacles would keep 
key raw material prices um, higher for longer. And, you know, I'm talking quite specifically about things like copper, things like lithium, rare earth materials. These, uh, you know, it's actually becoming a real hindrance and it's going to start hitting um, the bottom line. So companies have an incentive to pursue alternative or recycled materials in order to save costs. And thankfully, the technologies for these things like metal recycling, like bioplastics, there are quite a few of them that are almost at the cusp of commercialization. So all of these four different drivers combined together is what makes us think that now is finally the time when the corporate sector starts to address this properly. And this means that it would also become investable. Stephanie Choi. Finally, on the programme this week, let's cross to the United States and Michelle Laliberty, thematic investment strategist based in New York. Michelle, welcome to the programme. Give us your perspective on the thematic guide and the longer term multi-year investing horizon. When we think about investing over the longer term, of course, it's very hard to predict, you know, 10, 15, even five years in the future. So we've set up a framework that helps us think about that and work through that challenge. So we really think about six factors, namely uh, population growth, urbanization and emerging markets, the aging of the population, you know, as well as resource scarcities, technological change, as well as societal change. And we actually break those into two groups. So we call uh, the first set known knowns. And not to say that anything is 100% uh, for certain, right? Of course, almost anything is within the realm of possibilities when we try to predict uh, so far into the future. But these are trends that look pretty well entrenched. And that was the first couple that I mentioned there, uh, population growth, urbanization, and emerging markets and the aging of the population. And even though we can't say they're 100% locked in, we do have a pretty high degree of confidence in these overarching trends. And that really helps guide our investment view. Because if you think about something like the aging population, for example, you know, this is going to shift demand for things like healthcare services, right? When you think about aging, just using medical devices as an example, about two thirds of hip implant patients are over 65. Uh, Most cardiovascular surgery patients are in their late 60s. uh, And the average age of a first time hearing aid user is near 70. So these are the types of trends that we think are going to have a pretty significant impact on demand for products and services in the years ahead. So we use this framework as a way to start identifying you know, companies that can help solve some of these challenges that are going to be presented uh, by these trends. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I like the fact that you have this focus on where these big secular themes, some of which you've described there, whether that's changes in demography, healthcare, increasing urbanisation, alongside areas where there are some very disruptive forces at work. And that can seem a little intimidating in periods of volatility in particular, but actually that delivers opportunity. And there must be a lot of excitement about what happens where all of that comes together. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more, Michelle, about the nature of some of those opportunities in some of these specific areas. 
Yeah, so I mean, I just talked a little bit about the known knowns, right? But there are also that set of uh, known unknowns, we like to say. And that's the last three that I mentioned, which was resource scarcity, technological change, and societal change. And these are much harder to predict, right? Even predicting the pace of technological change is very difficult to do, but it does create you know, significant opportunities for the companies that are able to tap into these trends. So if you think about resource scarcity for a minute, you know, we have seen the economic impact of resource scarcity really firsthand this year, uh, from energy and food security, even to potable water shortages right here in the United States. So when we think about these challenges, we think about how are we going to solve them and what are the technologies that we can use to help, again, just solve these challenges. So when, it, when we think about resource scarcity, because I think that's particularly relevant this year, we've really seen the thesis of several uh, thematic trends really kind of brought into the spotlight here. So energy security, food security, cybersecurity even, um, these are all very topical. So it is interesting to your point, right, when we see these kind of large megatrends that are expected to play out over many years, are really starting to take hold even on our daily lives today. So we don't necessarily need to wait uh, 10 years to see how these trends are going to impact us. We're very much already seeing that today. Michelle, just maybe by way of some examples or a couple of data points to help kind of illustrate this, maybe we should zero in on a couple of other areas that are particularly sort of pertinent now. You've already talked about resource scarcity and the very many different facets of security, whether that's digital security or real-world security or resource security. Energy security, energy interdependence is very much a hot topic. And that's obviously one, again, where there are some really interesting data points that reveal areas of potential opportunity. Yeah, and energy, it's a good one, right? Because we all feel the impact of energy in our daily lives, whether it's we're filling up our, our car's gas tank at the gas station or we get our electricity bill, right? It is very much prevalent in our daily lives. And the challenge with energy security is that economic growth and energy consumption are intrinsically linked. And as our economies grow, we tend to consume more energy. So just to put you know, some numbers around it, you know, for one example, over 700 million people uh, still lack access to electricity, which is about 9% of the global population. And over the last 35 years, energy demand has risen in every single year besides just two, uh, 2009 and 2020. And if you recall, neither of those were great years for the global economy. So what I'm trying to say here is that we're going to need more energy supply, a lot more of it. Uh, and we like to call it the all hands on deck approach. Uh, so this means we're going to need several technologies and several types of energy sources in order to tackle this challenge. So you know, wind and solar certainly get a lot of attention in the media and we often hear this dialogue, right, that it's one versus the other or wind and solar uh, versus oil and natural gas. But in reality, you know, wind and solar are likely to be the fastest growing energy sources, but we're still going to need a variety of sources for quite some time. And as a result, we also think that energy efficiency tools, uh, for example, are going to play a very important role because that can help reduce demand on the other side of the equation rather than just increase supply. And we're also going to see technologies like carbon capture uh, continue to be ramped up and scaled until eventually they, they can become uh, commercialized. So it's not just renewables, right? It's this all hands on deck approach uh, that I mentioned. And it's definitely you know, something that we're paying pretty close attention to, especially uh, this summer. 
Michelle Laliberty, bringing us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club by subscribing to Monocle magazine. You can also follow this programme wherever you get your podcasts and discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.